sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to One Hour at a Time with Mary Woods and obviously this is John McAndrew, your guest host. I am lucky enough to guest at least once a month, uh, once a month for Mary and Today we have an, another special guest. Um, his name is Peter Roche, and Peter has a very interesting story, uh, an interesting journey. He's a very talented human being. He he's a writer and a creative uh, force behind several major ad campaigns, including Levi's and Miller Brewing and Rolling Stone and the new Axe commercials, which I'm sure he'll tell us about. Peter also, though, is uh, in recovery, and Peter says that he finally realized alcohol controlled his life when he found himself with a knife to his wrists, and despite every notion that life without alcohol would be a life not worth living, he started his journey to sobriety. Along the way, he reclaimed his love of writing and chronicled his journey in the new fiction. His new book is called My Dead Friend. Sarah, which is available on Amazon, and we'll tell you where you can get that. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm really psyched to be on the show. Uh, I'm very interested in advertising, and I think a lot of people are, and you obviously have been knee-deep into this world, and if you might tell us a little bit, I'm kind of curious. These are big ad campaigns. How did you walk your way into that world, and where did your journey start uh, with creative advertising? Well, ironically enough, uh, my journey into advertising started with beer. <laughs> uh, you know, I um, I'm, I'm from Texas originally. I currently live in New York, but I, I went to the University of Texas straight out of high school, and I had intended on on majoring in music. Um, but after having a uh, a fallout with some with some folks in the music department there, I, I found myself without a major. And um, after two years of sort of trying lots of different majors, including philosophy and psychology, and I think I toyed even with oceanography at one point, um, I was going to quit. And uh, I had a conversation with my family about it, and you know, I, I kind of said, I, I think I'm wasting your money. Uh, I don't really know where I'm headed with this, and, and uh-huh. maybe I should take a break. And they were, you know, as, as as any parent should be, they were like, "Well, we hope you, you know, reconsider. Just pick anything, major in something." 
and uh, and you'll be better off for it when you get out of there. And, and I, I don't think I really believed that, but <clears throat> later that weekend, um, I met up with a with a buddy. Um, it was actually a friend's roommate uh, to go drinking, and um, we were sitting there drinking. And he told me that he was taking a, a class called Introduction to Advertising. And he had actually already taken it once, believe it or not, but he, he didn't get the grade that he required to move on to the next course. So he said, I'll be taking it again. It was really fun. It's kind of hard, but, you know, if you do decide to stay in school, uh, why don't, why don't you do that? And, uh, you know, come and take it with me. So I went home and I, and I read about the course and I thought, well, you know, I, I can't break my parents' hearts. Um, at the time, my girlfriend was also pretty adamant that I stay in school. So I thought, well, if I am going to stay in school, at least I'll have a, a class with this guy. And, and, uh, and that's what got me into the first class. And then I was actually recently recapping a little bit of my journey, uh, for an easing and, and, Beer came into the equation again. Alcohol came into the equation again when about two-thirds of the way in that class, uh, we had a couple of guys who were in the creative sequence, is what they called it at the University of Texas. Right. Uh, yeah, they, they came and spoke about what that meant to be a creative in advertising, and they essentially distilled it down to one sentence that, you know, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it was, we sit around, drink beer, and come up with funny ideas. Oh, man. <laughs> and I thought... And you mean I can get paid to go somewhere and drink beer? Uh, that sounds wow. like a pretty good, uh, pretty good career path. Now, you know they were exaggerating for effect uh, to some extent, although there was quite a bit of drinking going on uh, during my time in college, and certainly within the creative sequence, which I, I did eventually enroll in. And and it was in in many ways it was uh, exactly what I needed from a from a major. It allowed me a place to do all sorts of uh, not only creative thinking but strategic thinking and 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 in fact quite a bit of drinking. And you know at that time and and for many many years thereafter, uh, I was definitely able to do both thinking and drinking. And you know uh, it was only it was only oh, I don't know five six years ago when. There was, there was no more thinking going on. Right, you know, more thinking, uh, much more drinking. Absolutely. But did the drinking in the beginning um, lighten you up a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, light like, uh, you know, your head, your brain, your creative process? I think so. I mean, if, if for no other reason than if you're working on something very hard and you're still not sure uh, that it's as good or funny or cool as it should be, Certainly, if you have a few drinks after that moment, you're like, "Yeah, that'll that'll do." Yeah, especially if you're an alcoholic, <laughs> you just you just gonna Did be you, looking for any reason to uh, to get past that moment. What was your first um, successful moment when you? I'm a musician, so I relate sending a song to somebody. But your first uh, commercial that someone said, "Well, we want to buy this," and and how did that process work? Well, I. You know, after I graduated, the the school and the program itself was uh, was uh, really well respected within the industry, and and still is. Um, so I think it was probably about four months before I landed a job, which was a little slower than I than I thought. Well, actually, let me back up. I was offered a job at an agency, a uh, big agency in New York, and I didn't really want to take that job because I didn't think that. Uh, 
that they were creative enough. I had been told mm-hmm. that it wasn't where you wanted to start your career if, if your if your interest was in making. Or we won't name names. Yeah. yeah. And um, ultimately, I landed uh, at a shop that was uh, equally large and, and a little bit dated. And they were one of the few places at that time. Uh, this was in '95, which I think was kind of a uh, the back end of a, of a recession, maybe, or at least a slow economic time. And they um, they were one of the few places that was hiring kids straight out of school. And it would be about six months before I sold anything that I was. I guess I could say I was proud of, and, and even when I did do that, it was it was something that I, I would look back on today as, you know, not not having been one of my finer moments creatively. But at the time, for for where I was at, I was very proud of it, and and certainly one of the first things I did after it was a billboard for a beer brand. Uh, uh-huh. So, and um, you know, I'm sure that uh, the moment when I presented it to the moment that they presented it, and then came back and told me that they had sold it was. Uh, filled with, you know, uh, elation and, and probably was celebrated with more drinking. More drinking. Well, you were obviously given a demographic, weren't you, to speak to in the billboard. And how, do, how does that work in advertising, and particularly alcohol? It's, um, I tell you, I can't go anywhere today and not see a billboard or a commercial or an advertisement for alcohol. It seems to be more and more as the years go by, for me anyway. Um, what year was this when you started and did your first billboard? That would have been in, uh, I started in 1995, and I think uh-huh. that billboard probably came out in 1996. And to answer the first part of your question, I think things have, have changed significantly in, in the last 15 years in terms of how um, advertisers go about creating a message where where that direction comes from. You know, in in those days there was uh, there was not. A, currently, there's a position that's called a strategist, uh, strategic planning, mm-hmm. and and these people that this this collection of of thinkers really focuses in on trying to find something unique about a brand, a service, or a product that that we can then take as creatives and build messaging around so the theory being that if you if you start it that way then that one singular thing you're supposed to be communicating to whatever demographic you're trying to advertise to will actually be true you know relevant and uh and make sense for that for that time you know back then at least at the agency i was at and and i think in america in general there wasn't uh, quite the emphasis on strategic thinking before the creative process started, and a lot of times the the client or maybe even your creative directors themselves might come up with the idea in terms of you know what they wanted you to say about a product right and I am not exactly sure what the target was i 'm sure it's similar to what a beer drinking target would be now you know i 'm going to guess like twenty one to thirty four predominantly male and this particular beer brand was a regional brand that was uh being sold mostly in in Florida, Alabama, and I think maybe parts of Georgia, so there was you know probably some thinking that went into you know what is funnier to to that region versus what sure. somebody might call New York funny, <laughs> but the process itself was. You know, pretty much, client comes to you says, you know, we have uh, this brand, this this product that we want to to move. 
in this part of the country in that particular case and and you know here's what we think we can say about our beverage and if I'm not mistaken at that time it had something to do with being less watered down I think oh that's yeah that's, yeah, that's important <laughs> unless you want to drink a bunch in which case I, I kind of preferred my beer watered down <laughs> right um yeah, it's so that was how it worked then a little bit. Now it's it's a little, not a little, it's I, I think quite a bit more lengthy process where a client comes to you with a problem and an agency works very hard at creating a solution for that problem. Right. And when they've arrived at, you know, something uh, that they think will, will shift uh, where the brand's headed, and that is presented as what we call a creative brief and then that brief is handed to the, the you know, it could be one team of creatives, it could be three teams, and sometimes it's the whole agency depending on what the, mm-hmm. the assignment is. And then everybody puts their best effort against figuring out the, the way that they can communicate that, that one strategic thought, you know, uh, and, and make some noise doing it, whether it's through humor or simply portraying it in a cool way or an emotional way. And and that's I probably simplified the business a little bit right well, now. Well, it's just, but the, the the irony that fascinates me is that now you're in recovery and you're open about that. You must have your agency or you must have had some success, and then you got some some pretty big name clients. And is there a point where your uh, active using started to? <laughs> interfere with your creative process and um, you know when did did success happen at that time for you and how did all that work well you know I think a lot of people in the business just to to give a little more backstory um, you know when you're a young creative the best way to continue and move forward is to do something good and then and then ride that success into another agency and usually with that, you, you maybe you get a, a job where you're working on a brand that's a little more attractive and, and certainly money comes into play. And, you know, between 1995 and 2005, I had a pretty fast ride um, up the ladder, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and I was drinking that whole time. And, you know, I certainly wasn't drinking every day uh, from a very early on. I mean, going back to high school, I you know I was a blackout drinker, but never ever registered to me that that was uh, a problem at all. I mean, I you know as a lot of alcoholics do, I surrounded myself with a, a lot of other blackout drinkers. Yeah. So it just seemed like part of the you know part of what happened when you when you went out and partied. So I I went from that job, that initial job I was at for three years, and and then I went to another and, and another and another, and I think. By the time I got to my sixth or seventh job, I, I landed at a place that um, was very well, uh, had, a, had an amazing creative reputation. And uh, it was probably around then that I was at the height of what I would say was my creative thinking. And uh-huh. drinking was a part of that, but it was still working at that point. Right. Well, Peter, we're, we're going to be back here in a minute. We're going to take a little break. We're talking to Peter Roche, and Peter is a writer and... Uh, creative force behind several national ad campaigns. And Peter also has a book out called My Dead Friend Sarah. And we're going to get to that in the next segment and some other things. And we're going to ask you a few more questions. So um, we'll be back in a minute.
listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. Again, this is John McAndrew, your guest host, and today we've been talking with Peter Roche, and Peter is a very creative person in the advertising agency, among other things. He's written a novel that we're going to get to, or written a book called My Dead Friend Sarah. It's it's an interesting read. Uh, It's written from an interesting perspective in a very interesting way, and we'll talk about that a little later, about his sort of chronicling his journey uh, in, in recovery. And in our last segment, we were kind of at Peter's height of his using, and also you were getting to be quite a hot shot in the ad- advertising business, weren't you? Uh, yeah, it seemed like it. It certainly <laughs> seemed like it to me. Or a hot I, shot, um, you know. That's a, you, were, you were becoming successful. I, I was. A lot of the work that I was doing um, for a lot of very famous brands at that time was, was doing really well out in the world. There was a lot of people knocking on on the door, calling on the phone, asking uh, myself and, and and my partner at the time to come and join them at their agencies, and you know, lots of money was being discussed, and and it was you know, it was it was a great time. <laughs> um, and you were in New York City, that's right. Yeah, in New York City, and and it seemed like uh, you know, I could I could do just about anything I wanted to, and and I guess I I kind of had been, and uh, that. That continued, and and I may have I may have bitten off a little more than I than I could chew. You know, I was I think I was 32 years old um, when I took a job as a senior vice president, executive creative director at a at a large agency, um, co-running a creative department with with two two other really talented people who <clears throat> um, came from from uh, very uh, you know, well-respected creative shops, and we were charged with uh, kind of helping turn turn an agency around that that 
prior to the five year or at some point uh, had had been doing very well and then had uh, you know kind of a down cycle and and wasn't getting the workout that they wanted and they brought us all in to to help manage that process and and uh for for a plethora of reasons <clears throat> excuse me for a plethora of reasons um you know what we had intended on on doing uh with that challenge just wasn't working and and I you know certainly recognize now that that my consumption of alcohol during that time probably wasn't you know helping push uh, that creative department forward any more than was the lying and you know my own and the lying of others around me and and uh, certain certain things that were definitely out of my control that I thought I could control and uh, right. If I were to take the same position now, uh, you know, I, I imagine it would have been a lot more successful for all parties involved, and I certainly would have enjoyed it more. But that was where my using really became, um, you know, my drinking became more of a, a coping mechanism, and it right. became less of a, you know, hey, let's celebrate, hey, let's commiserate, let's, you know, we all worked hard, so let's go grab a drink. And now I found myself. Uh, Drinking openly, you know, which uh, depending on the agency can be uh, tolerated, if not accepted, and, and maybe occasionally even encouraged, uh, depending on the time of the day. And it was nothing for me to open up a couple of years at like three o'clock. And at that time, I think I also really started to drink quite a bit of Jameson's. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, were they one of your clients? Or <laughs> no, no, they weren't one of my clients. I'm not really sure why I picked Jameson's. You know, maybe well, I saw an ad and it seemed like it fit fit my personality. So at this at this particular um, company, you're obviously in charge of the creative process, but you're also in charge of the administrative sort of business thing. And I have something here I might ask you about. What is the Don Draper syndrome? Don Draper syndrome, I think, is is my publicist's best way of saying succinctly that <laughs> when you reach uh, a point of, of you know a good deal of success within within the advertising industry, that you know the rigors and, and the stresses and, and the successes and the defeats and everything that's related to it. I mean that. You know, I cannot speak about other industries. I can only speak about my own, and I'm sure that other things people do are, are just as intense. But advertising is an intense business, and mm-hmm. and much like I'm sure, you know, investment banking or other things are, you know, there's definitely a work hard, play hard kind of mentality, and I think that's kind of what the Don Draper syndrome is. You're doing very well. You're You're very well respected, but, you know, part of that, uh, aura of success is being able to go out and, and do late nights and wine and dine clients and and drink with the you know the fellows and and maybe to, you know, not maybe also maybe I'm saying maybe too much but you know doing uh, a bit of philandering I suppose yeah yeah and drugs and uh, drugs are huge you know drugs are not a big uh, big part of my story I definitely use them but not with any. Uh, not with any great frequency until the last year of of my using when I was abusing prescription medication. Oh, because it seems in the bit well, I, I you could probably say in any endeavor and field of work, but uh, the success and the drinking and the drugging it looks really great on the outside, but there's a percentage of people where it's killing them, and. Uh, 
they kind of don't want to see that or admit that. Did you get to the point where anybody you worked with said, uh, Peter, we need to talk to you about this, or Peter, are you okay? You know, you know, at that at that particular time, I think the only person who who came to me uh, often to tell me that that I needed to slow down. You know, they never went as far as to say I was an alcoholic. There was uh, my girlfriend at the time. Uh, definitely, she saw. You know, she saw what was going on because she saw the real me. She saw the me who came home. She saw the me who pushed off going to work. You know, to try to sleep a hangover off a little bit longer. Um, you know, she took me uh, to Bellevue Hospital Hospital for my first uh, visit to to a psych ward. You know, after after a full day of drinking. When how old I, were you I, then? I was thirty three years old. Okay, so it yeah. from thirty two to thirty three, you packed in quite a bit of life, didn't you? I did, I did, and uh, and then it, it just kept accelerating. You know, I. I, I looked at everything that was going on in my life except the drinking, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And uh, I blamed, you know, I was I was dealing with an, uh, an intense amount of depression um, that I, you know, either would blame the job for, or I would blame my relationship with that with uh, with that woman, or I would blame anything. I would blame anything Pressure. except drinking. You know? Yeah. And uh, on the outside, to a lot of my friends, I think I just still managed to appear like, you know, a guy who really liked to drink when he was out, but not somebody who um, a lot of my friends, even the close ones, would classify as an alcoholic because so many of us grew up with this idea that an alcoholic is is an unemployed, you know, uh, penniless uh, person who, you know, can't make it out of bed, I guess. Right. Right, and I hadn't reached that point yet, you know, and I did eventually. Um, when your girlfriend took you the first time, uh, what what was that experience like? I was relieved at first because I really I said to her, I cannot do this anymore, and right. it was the first time that I had ever said anything like that to anyone. And we were, she had come and picked me up at a bar and was driving me home, and I said, I cannot do this anymore. You have to take me somewhere right now. And when I first got there, I was relieved. Um, right. You know, they ended up putting me in a in a waiting area with her, and, and several hours uh, went by. And eventually, I got just just sober enough to think that I didn't really need to be there anymore. Right. And I did meet with a psychologist, uh, and he asked me. He said, "You know, somebody mentioned that maybe you were thinking about killing yourself. Is that true?" And I said, "Oh, we all say that." Yeah. And. Uh, and eventually he he let me go, and that was the first of I lost track. I, it was at least four trips to hospitals. It may have been as many as five between 2006 and 2008. Well, it's interesting. Um, Westbridge, who sponsors this show, deals and talks a lot about dual diagnosis and mental health and substance abuse. That's what the program's about, you know, and that's mm-hmm. why you're here today. Mm-hmm. When you your first experience um, sounds like depression and anxiety and mental health issues, it's interesting that you sobered up enough to figure out, well, maybe I don't need to be here. Yeah. It's an interesting dilemma, isn't it, when an alcoholic kind of uh, fools himself into that. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and I, 
You know, probably the only other thing that I did that year that was worth doing was the very next day, uh, I did go talk to a, a really good friend and coworker of mine who I knew had been sober for, at that time, maybe six, six years, seven years. And he, he was working the program exactly right. Like, he never, ever came to me trying to get me to do anything, but he led by example. You know, he was, mm-hmm. he was the guy who had the twinkle in his eye. He was, always seemed so happy, you know, and, and I knew he had, I, I don't think I really connected his sobriety to that at that point. It's only now that I can sit back and see that was why he was the way he was. Right. But I did go to him that morning after I was in Bellevue and, and, uh, I, I told him what had happened and how I had been, you know, basically at a bar since 11 o'clock in the morning the day before and about the hospital visit. And it was at that moment he said, well, I'm, I'm really busy with something right now, but I definitely want to talk to you uh, about this further. And we did, and he introduced the, the concept of AA to me in, in a very light sense and offered to take me to a meeting. But I don't think I would go to my first meeting for at least another year, if not a little longer. So, so you'd be 34 or 35 when you got to your first meeting, is that right? Yes, yes. So how much more miserable did you get and crazy and uh the usual Well, I continued I continued to drink more and more and I and I started uh drinking every day eventually. You know, I I I ended up deciding to go freelance. So I quit my full-time job, which basically allowed me to be unemployed for days and days at a time. Um you know, there was a lot of money to be made in freelance, but only if you were actually accepting and taking freelance. And, and I was taking very little of it because I had uh, other designs. And mm-hmm. at the time, I really believed that if I broke up with my girlfriend, even though she had been uh, tremendously supportive, that that would also aid me in my uh, quest to stop drinking. Because after a particularly bad incident at a different hospital, I did make a good solid two months run not not being dry completely but i did not drink very much and you know i started exercising and i started doing all these other things to occupy my time and and uh you know i actually from sixth grade on i've I've had a condition called a central tremor so my hands shake just a little bit and um that was a big one of my big uh excuses for drinking anytime anybody did tell me that i had a problem with drinking i said well you don't have a central tremors and that's the only thing that stops my hands from shaking it's kind of it's a twisted sort of thing because in fact actually uh if you're not an alcoholic having a drink or two will uh, help some people with essential tremors if you are an alcoholic it ultimately makes the shaking not only worse while you're drinking but certainly the next day it can be unbearable and, and oh. there was time where i wasn't even able to use my hands well, but, well we've uh, been talking to peter roche and uh he is sharing his story and his journey in recovery with us very honestly uh I think he's gotten to the doors and into the rooms and gotten some help. And when we come back, uh, we're going to hear a little bit more about the good stuff. And we want to hear about your book, Peter, and we'll, uh, we'll tell the folks about it. My dead friend, Sarah, when we come back. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkhart and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkhart every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. We're still talking with Peter Roche, and uh, Peter's been sharing his story in recovery and uh, his life and times in the in the ad advertisement business, and uh, he's had a lot of success. And of course, uh, alcohol and and drugs took that away. And uh, Peter has a book called My Dead Friend Sarah. And I want to give you first of all, Peter's website is Peter Roche P E T E R R O S C H dot com, and also My Dead Friend. Sarah.com is the book, which is also available at at Amazon.com. And uh, Peter, you kind of took us when you were scraping bottom, and uh, maybe we should come up for some air now and share a little bit about uh, how you got well. Absolutely. You know, I, it's so easy to get bogged down in those dark details. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's the truth. You know, my my final drink that that took me into the rooms did, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show. You know, I I was alone. I was in my apartment. I was on the back end of probably seven days of nothing but drinking and no eating, and 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 I was seriously contemplating suicide. And then I was lucky enough that a good friend of mine called me at that moment and lied to me, told me she was sending a friend over, and in actuality she called nine one one, and I ended up at a at a hospital again and. And it was there that I met um, the first the first doctor that I couldn't talk I couldn't talk out or couldn't talk into letting me go. Uh. And uh, the only way you know I had I had already started going to AA. This was a relapse. You know I think I put 27 days together. And that's so often is the case when I went back out, it came back you know even harder. And so I, I told him, oh, I'm already going to AA, and I was planning on going to rehab, and I had been doing a, a lot of research on it, and, you know, part of me felt like I was getting closer to going, but he basically laid it out. He's like, you're not going anywhere. Um, you know, I'm probably going to admit you into the psych ward, and, and I and I just panicked. You know, I went into a scramble, and I, I managed to get my father on the phone and said, if you can't get me into a rehab like tomorrow, they're going to put me in the psych ward here. And I had heard enough stories in, in some of the rooms here in New York City to know that that wasn't a place I wanted to be. 
Right, right. And, uh, and, and my friend came the next day and she picked me up and she, uh, she actually took a day off from school. I think she even had an exam coming and she flew with me all the way to San Francisco where I went to, uh, rehab, uh, outside of San Francisco in Marin County. And the reason I chose that rehab was because it was a, they offered some dual diagnosis, diagnosis programs and, and they had, um, had experience with treating alcoholics who also had essential tremors. And, and that was great. And that certainly put 30 days of not drinking under my belt. But the real magic moment was the, the day I got out. You know, I flew back solo. Nobody came to ride with me and I, and I went back to New York. And the very next morning I went back into a, a meeting. I picked a new meeting. Uh, you know, I was in, in my head I'm like, I gotta start this right, the right way from the very get go. Uh-huh. And I raised my hand as soon as uh, it was taught, you know, after the speaker had shared, and I said, my name's Peter Roche, and I'm an alcoholic. I've got 30 days, but I just got out of rehab, and I need a sponsor right now. And, um, and of course, as, as I'm sure you've probably seen, no less than 20 people got up to come and, and offer their, their support and, and be my sponsor, and it was a little daunting. Um but that that was that was the, the first step, you know, was coming back and admitting as openly and as possible um, to to as many strangers as possible that would that wanted to listen that that I needed help. Not even that I was an alcoholic, you know. I hear people come in and say that all the time, but that was the first time that I went into a room and actually said, "I I need help with this. There's no way that I could do this alone." And, um, you know, I don't know how much experience you have in the rooms in New York. I think they're the best. I know a lot of people think the West Coast is the best, and I'm sure some people think they're better in Texas. And um, the great thing about getting sober in New York is there are a ton of meetings. Uh, there are almost as many meetings as there are bars, and they're happening every hour. So given my, you know, uh, situation at that time, you know, I lost my job. I didn't have anything else going on, so I just made meetings what I I was doing. I was fortunate that I hadn't blown through all my cash. You know, I had definitely made some questionable decisions with my money in my last days of drinking, but I had enough to get by long enough to to pretty much commit to to uh, if not three meetings, two meetings a day for for ninety days, and I'm sure one or two days in there, I may have missed one, but uh, that was that was the first step for sure. And did you, at that point, have any fears about losing your creative? energies oh and your creative talents and that that part of your life would somehow go away i did absolutely. you have any of those fears at that point when you went back to new york city absolutely you know i i mentioned to you while we were on break that that i'm also a musician and and i honestly believed with with all of my being and it put me into a, a pretty long uh, depression and sobriety that i would not be able to write again nothing good I wouldn't right. be able to play guitar ever again. You do you know? play in a band in New York City, don't you? I do, yes. I play in a band called The Future. And is that a, kind of for fun or for profit? Is it a non-profit organization? <laughs> <laughs> it most definitely is a non-profit organization, but it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. And, and, you know, I've played in bands my, most of my life, and it, it's definitely been the more successful uh, the most successful of, of the bands that I've played in and, and I didn't think I'd be able to, to get on stage. I really didn't think I would be able to play the guitar if I wasn't able to have one beer. 
Right. And I forced, you know, ultimately I did. I did a show um, sober, and, and it was probably the scariest thing at that time that I had ever done, climbing on stage with the guitar without the benefit of of drinking, uh, without the benefit of any drugs. You know, I for a short period of time, I was on some prescription medication for my hands, but I had, I had taken myself off of that, too, because I really wanted to get just completely down to the bottom of what I was about and what I was feeling, and, and I didn't like it, you know, I, I didn't right. really enjoy my first six months of sobriety very much, you know, uh, there certainly there was good times and there were some good moments, but it, was, it wasn't easy. Uh, I think that's such an, uh, it's a huge victory, I, you know, I know a lot of people in recovery and uh, to watch a musician uh, go from where you were at and where many of them are at. And to be up on stage absolutely comfortable, uh, playing and smiling and performing. And I'm going to assume that you have a really good time playing with this band. And uh, I just think that's a great victory to, to have substance abuse and alcoholism and some mental health issues and to overcome that and get up on stage. Because I, I think a lot of people don't know that most musicians are scared to death. You know, yeah, to be in front of people and why they take that as a job, I still can't figure it out. It is. But what what a victory! I just wanted to say that to you. Well, thank you. It, it definitely felt like one when it was over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, since then, yeah, to go and play a show sober is not even a thing. And and you know, I, I mentioned that my guitar playing is certainly better than it ever was when I was drinking, and and I enjoy the whole everything about it, everything about music. Is infinitely more enjoyable in sobriety, and everything about writing, every, all the the things that I do that I guess you might term as as creative, uh, you know, while initially difficult to uh, maybe maybe do with the same level of enjoyment in early sobriety, ultimately have all been uh, increased. The enjoyment has been increased because I'm sober. Yeah, and so obviously living sober. You have another story about that, and people that get into recovery, life takes on, well, it takes on a whole, a whole lot different meaning because you're responsible for things and accountable in relationships and your work and all that. And at some point, um, I think you, you talk about reclaiming your love of writing. And uh, tell us how you got into that and how this book came about. Well, you know, like a lot of uh, a lot of drunks, I said a lot of things, and one of the things that I, I really love to say to people who would listen to me uh, while sitting on bar stools was, you know, I'm going to write a book. I'm writing a book. I probably just said straight up, I've written a book, even though there was no book. Sure. You know, <laughs> written and, 14 uh, books. Exactly. <laughs> Where are these books, Peter? Uh, they're around. Um, it was in the back of my mind as something that I always wanted to do, and 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 maybe less than a book, more just you know telling stories. I think that's why I've always, even when I was drinking, at least early on, why I enjoyed advertising because ultimately it's 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 telling stories. And I think going back to even when I was a, a child, you know, I I love to tell stories, and no surprise, I, you know, I love to fabricate things too. You know, I. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to believe you know, I'm, I'm of the opinion that I was born an alcoholic and there was quite a few uh, things that I was doing as a kid that weren't drinking that seemed to indicate that that's where I was headed now as I look back at it. And, you know, I 
I remember the day that I sat down to write the first time uh, in sobriety, and I was petrified. And I would say I did not enjoy it. And it was for a company, and I was working uh, on a pretty large brand, and and there was a lot of pressure that I was putting on myself to deliver something exceptional, even though I think I probably was only about three months in uh, into my sobriety at that time. And unlike uh, typical uh, situations where you work with a partner, uh, this was a, a job where I was working solo and I was in a vacuum and I drove myself nuts yeah. just wondering, is anything that I just wrote good? Does anything I just wrote make sense? And it was harrowing. It was a harrowing experience. But, you know, like so many things with sobriety, and, and for me, around that five-month mark to six-month mark is when things started to click, you know, and I felt like my brain was working. And I also had a a really fortunate opportunity to reunite with a a friend of mine who was in the business. He was doing some freelance, and he brought me in on a job, and we uh, were, you know, we we were just working out of his apartment. And and there was, you know, obviously some kinship there that existed. He he actually is right now, I think, in his eighth month of recovery. (laughs) Oh, wow. He was still drinking at the time, but he was very uh, supportive of my of my sobriety, and now I'm, I'm returning the favor as, as he goes through early sobriety. But that was the first time when all of a sudden enough things clicked that I was like, wait a minute, this is fun. What I'm doing right now with pen and paper and computer and coming up with these ideas is fun. And it can be fun in sobriety. And and I'm not sure until that moment happened that, that I was convinced that it would be. And, and then I, I started to, you know, dabble in a little bit of journaling, which was a recommendation that uh, my sponsor at the time had made, which is pretty funny. You know, all my whole life I've been calling myself a writer, but I had never kept a journal. I had done very little uh, writing outside of what would earn me a paycheck. And, uh, and I found that I, that I rather enjoyed that as well. And, uh, well, you never wrote about yourself, did you? No, no, I was always writing about some, somebody else and... Yeah, you know, there wasn't really much that I had to say about me until until later. Was all that healing for you? I found a lot of it to be very healing. You know, I, I found a lot of it to be very challenging uh, as well. And certainly, when I when I finally did sit down and commit to writing a book, for better or worse, right? You know, I was uh, a full book. I had, I had started a few over the over the course of my adult life and, and never completed them. But when I finally said, well, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write it, and if it's bad, it's bad, but it's going to be a complete manuscript. You know, right. I will I will finish something. And I wasn't really sure where that journey was going to take me, but, you know, like like my drinking, I mean, I, I just kept it within, within the day, if not within the hour. You know, I, I just, like, I will write for two hours. At the end of those two hours, I will I will leave what I've written. I won't look at it. I won't read it. I'll go take a long walk. I was fortunate at the time, you know, I, things had gotten better. I was working again and, and my wife and I had decided to move to Costa Rica for six months. And so for me, taking a break meant going and walking on a, you know, a tropical beach with monkeys. It wasn't such a bad deal. Well, boy, you've gone from the psych hospital to the beach with monkeys. I've been talking to, <laughs> to Peter Roche and uh, he's the author of a new, his first book, I believe. It's called My Dead Friend Sarah. And we come back I'm going to ask Peter where he came up with the title, when he knew that was going to be the title of his book, and and uh, you're going to be very interested in hearing about this book. It's it's a very interesting read. We'll be right back. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. This is our last segment. Uh, again, I'm John McAndrew. We've been talking with Peter Roche all day. Peter has been sharing his story and recovery with us. And uh, I want to remind you that Peter's website is peterroche.com, and it's P-E-T-E-R-R-O-S-C-H. Also, uh, mydeadfriendsarah.com is where you can get information about the book, which is also sale at, uh, on sale at amazon.com. And there's another uh, website, level19paranoia.com, and I'm going to have to have Peter tell me what that's about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's actually level nine. Level nine. Yeah. Um, Level nine paranoia is a is a blog that I started in uh, 2010. No, I'm sorry, 2011. So I've actually only been keeping it for. Was it? Wait a minute. Was it 2010? Not 2011. Either way, you know, my mind is uh, is filled with crazy all the time, and I needed a place to put it. Okay, and, uh, people can go there and yeah, get a little and crazy. It's, it's just it's basically where I put you know the twisted thoughts that I have, and and I do it in a humorous way. I try to keep it very light, and um, you know, it seems to be doing all right. Your book, my dead friend Sarah, the characters Max and. Sarah and Rachel, and uh, I know you'll tell us about that a little bit, but when did you know that that was going to be the title of your book? I think, you know, I I guess I knew it pretty early on because as a, as a way to make sure that I didn't just sit there dwelling on, you know, writing page after page after page, I would give myself other little parts of what I knew were coming, you know, research a little bit about publication, research a little bit about uh, getting an agent, research about publishing yourself, you know, rather than write the book, why don't you concept titles? So I think I had about three chapters done, and uh, and I just did a little exploratory on, on uh, titles for it. And I think the second thing I wrote down was My Dead Friend Sarah, and I... I just really liked the way that it sounded, and, and I knew that this was going to be a story, obviously, about Sarah, and, you know, uh, 
whether or not she's dead or not, I, I don't want to say because <laughs> I want right. people to read the book. But um, I, as an advertiser, I'll just be completely honest. I also did a quick Google search on it, and I saw that nobody else was making claim to it, and there was very a few things that were similar, so I knew that if, if I was to eventually publish it, if I was to get it out there, that mm-hmm. um, anyone were to Google it, it would show up, and, and that anything that had that combination of words in it, whether it's this interview with you or, you know, the Kirkus review or, or any of that stuff would, would come to the surface quickly, you know, as opposed to if I had written, uh, you know, my journey through sobriety, there, that could bring up hundreds and hundreds of other things. Your character, Max, is a twisted fellow, um, obviously, and he has this dream about this woman. You can tell him a little bit about that, I think, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Max is, you know, he's new to recovery. He's uh, nine or ten months in, and he's doing pretty well by at least, uh, you know, what, what people can tell on the outside, and I think he thinks he's doing well. And the book sort of starts right in, in, in the crux of, a, of his dilemma, which is, you know, f- for the last few years of his of his drinking and, and even in his sub- early sobriety, he's been having a a dream. And in that dream, he he meets a woman, and you know, sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're not. The way that dreams kind of shape shift around a you know a, a skeleton of a narrative, and mm-hmm. ultimately he knows that. At the end of his dream, she always ends up abducted and dead, and he doesn't see who does it, and he doesn't know how she was killed. She, he just knows, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that she's dead. And then one day, he happens to be crossing the street, and he sees this woman from his dreams, and he speculates it could be that he met her at a strip club. It could be that he knew her from you know working before, but it, it's really irrelevant because he has been dreaming about her, but he's pretty sure he's never, ever met her before. And she has the same green bag on her person, doesn't she, that's in the dream? She she does. She does. Yeah. yeah. So he, like many alcoholics before him, decides that he can control this situation and decides to go about the business of befriending Sarah, the stranger, which, you know, I know for me a big part of my drinking was related to meeting strangers. You know, I, I never met anybody without drinking and Mm-hmm. And uh, to meet new people in sobriety can be a challenge, and he go he he does it. Uh, he does sort of fall into it accidentally, and they they end up becoming friends. And the whole time he's you know thinking, well, I'll get to this point where I tell her what I think is going to happen to her, but I can't do it can't do it right away. You know what what would somebody think about me if I if I told them I'd been dreaming about them for three years when I just met them and. And she falls in love with him. And, you know, he's married and he's trying to do everything the way that he believes he should do or the way he thinks people want him to do via the program, via AA. He's sort of misinterpreting the the steps. <clears throat> and he decides to to break it off with her just immediately and, um, and, and, and sort of stay loyal to his wife and his situation that, that he feels like he's sort of obligated to be in that situation. Right. And um, ultimately, she goes missing, just as he had dreamt. And the New York City Police Department uh, comes after him because there was a, a moment earlier on in, in the narrative where he decided to tell the police, but they blew him off because it was just a dream, and he was just another nut, you know, with a, with yeah. a story to tell. And so it's she goes very, missing, and the story moves from there. Pieces, the secrets, the level of secrets. Um, and you talk about it in terms of recovery and trying to do the, you know, Max wants to do the right things. 
but then the secrets build up. And at one point, his wife, Rachel, and Sarah actually make contact. And there's just one little bit in Chapter 26 where Sarah writes this letter to Rachel. I think it's really powerful. Um, well, you tell them about it. I think it's a powerful piece, though. Well, I mean, as you said, Rachel does meet Sarah because uh, after Max breaks it off with Sarah, she, you know, she has her own issues, as I'm sure you you sure. saw throughout the book, and and drinking isn't one of them, but she's got a lot of isms, mm-hmm. and you know, I think the one thing that Sarah can see uh, clearer than Max, and certainly clearer than Rachel, is that you know she truly believes that. Um, that Max is in love with her and that Max would be better off with her. And she has this kind of twisted respect for Rachel, like this kind of combination of, you know, Rachel is this great person for sticking it out. Rachel has gotten Max to this point, and that's all well and good. But, you know, maybe just, you know, here and there she glimpses that it's not really what's best for her. It's not really what's best for Max. And she certainly doesn't think it's what's best for her because she's madly in love with Max. So she does write Rachel a letter and, and basically makes it known um, to Rachel what, what's been going on, that they had known each other. And she knows, I think at that point, that Rachel probably knows, and, and that doesn't matter to her. And she just sort of she, she positions it to Rachel in the way that I just did, where it's like, you know, which, which one of us would be better for Max at that point? Yeah, it's really kind of a recovery showdown, that letter, uh, <laughs> at the OK Corral, and again, we we certainly don't want to give away the ending to the book. I, it's really, really interesting how they, from chapter it goes from Max to Sarah and Max to Sarah. I found that interesting. I think other people will too. And thank we you. thank you for sharing your recovery with us, Peter, and your story so openly. I. I do know that you had some success recently with a new commercial. No, I did. Uh, there, there is a, a campaign running for Axe right now that uh, features a Kiefer Sutherland and, and a woman uh, named Susan Glenn. So the campaign is actually called Fear No Susan Glenn. Yeah, it's just incredible. And I want to congratulate you on your victories uh, playing guitar, getting up on <laughs> stage. You. I hope to get to New York to see you. Again, Peter Roche. It's PeterRoche.com. Peter's last name is R-O-S-C-H. Level9Paranoia.com is a little blog you can go to. The book's available at Amazon.com. And uh, we just want to thank you here at One Hour at a Time for sharing your story and um, your victories with us. And uh, maybe we'll see you again down the line, Peter. Thank you again. Absolutely. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. 